Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. Hi, I'm Laura, and this is Song Cycle the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song, its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with one of my acting teachers and opera directors, David Paul, about some of the important questions facing the art song and opera worlds right now, innovation in the performing arts through the pandemic, and one of my profoundly embarrassing moments that he witnessed during one of our acting classes. Thank you so much for for being here. You are actually our um, first non-CSI podcast guest. Okay. So this is this is a, a really high honor that we're bestowing on you and I hope, I feel I hope you feel appropriately that. I feel appropriately honored. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Um so anyway, we here we are. Um, kind of the 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 first official episode, I guess. So, um, David, do you want to tell the good the many listeners that we are going to have in our first few episodes? Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and I don't know what you do, why you do it, how you got into it, and kind of how how we are connected? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is David Paul, and I work as a director for opera and film and theater. And I also teach acting to singers. That's how you it's and I met. Job. Um, <laughs> it is it. There's a lot of different kinds of learning that need to happen. So it's actually a very challenging form of education, I find, because challenging in a good way, because every person who comes to singing comes with uh, a really varied background in terms of their stage skills. There are those singers who were in every musical growing up and have always loved to be on stage. And then there are those who maybe played the oboe growing up and discovered when they were 17 that they have this incredible instrument, but have never had to be a soloist on stage in any shape or form, much less sort of hold the attention of an audience and communicate through words. Um, so anyway, it is a lot to ask and it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot different than just being a great musician. So yeah, my work started as an actor. That was my kind of my jumping off point in theater and in film. And I got interested in assistant directing and, uh, through doing that got to work in Washington at the Shakespeare theater there for a couple of years as an assistant and directing some smaller projects myself. Work in Shakespeare, I think, translates really interestingly and logically to work in opera because you've got language that is not natural, it's heightened, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you've got people on stage and you want them to be recognizably human um, and you want human emotion and you want human ambition and drive and objective and all of that all of which i think is very much true in opera too absolutely um, at the same time i had some opportunities early on when i was still pursuing acting to have uh day jobs uh in the opera world i worked uh, right out of college when i was sort of taking auditions and stuff i worked for a talent agency columbia artists which unfortunately is no longer with us and i worked at the met opera for two seasons in casting um neither of those were things i knew i wanted to keep doing necessarily, but mm -hmm. were great ways to get to know a little bit more about opera, which was an art form I didn't really know much about. Um, and then through some luck, ended up joining the faculty at Juilliard in 2010, which was 
actually as a result of a very kind of visionary gift by a man named Jim Marcus, who was a great philanthropist mm -hmm. and who gave a gift to Juilliard specifically for the voice department and specifically not for just voice training. He wanted it to be used in, in ways in which voice training wasn't really happening yet. And so that year there was this opportunity to hire somebody to work as an acting coach and to work on drama. And that's kind of how I slipped in there. <laughs> wow. I actually like when I, I started in 2010 mm. and they had just renamed it the Marcus Institute. Yeah. And I didn't realize that that was the reason you were brought into the fold. Yeah, it was a, you know, we hired new teachers that year and uh, it was that gift that made it possible. And I think it's given us a lot of opportunity, both as teachers and as a school, I think, to really explore ways in which singers learn how to perform and learn how to act. It's something that, you know, is is a an integral part of the curriculum now in a way that yeah. very, very few schools get to do. Um, we're very lucky with that. And it's something that I keep learning and evolving on because I think it's uh it's a really dynamic pursuit and comes, as I said, with a lot of challenges. Yeah. And that's something I feel like I've talked to so many of my colleagues about. And like, I, I feel very fortunate that, you know, during my time at Juilliard, I got to, I got to work with some really stellar people, yourself included, to hone those acting skills, right? And it's just really tough because you, like you said, with your work in Shakespeare, you have this opportunity to work in elevated language in something that doesn't quite feel natural. I mean, in mm -hmm. opera, you are working in another language. You're working with sort of these slow motion emotions and um, extended mm -hmm. drama. And um, <laughs> it's just really interesting um, talking to my colleagues about the challenges that come along with that, not just as a, as a singer, but as, you know, you being someone on the other side that that mm -hmm. poses some really interesting challenges. Um, so I'm just so grateful that you're here to talk to us about those challenges today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so I just have to ask, I can't, I was thinking about this while I was getting ready for our interview today. Was it your class that I fainted? It was in my was class. That, it was <laughs> unforgettable, unforgettable moment. I was thinking about that as I was getting ready and I was like, I couldn't remember if it was you or John John Petro's class that I fainted in. And I'm already like, I'm flushing because I'm so embarrassed. Those that still haunts me to this day. I still can't sing. I want magic without like that <laughs> panic of like, Oh my God, am I going to sing this note? And am I going to pass out? So great, it was, good. it was a moment that I will truly never forget in my life. <laughs> and so you, I will never forget you in my life, Laura. I'm sweating and <laughs> very flattered. Thank you. Um, so anyway, that's, I guess our connection. I left an indelible mark on your teaching career. <laughs> you did. And we should say fainting while, performing not just painting <laughs> in a seat somewhere over to the side so it was very dramatic oh, and very I think it very happened, like in dirt when I was about to sing the high note and I just remember my field of vision just like closed in around me and I was like I'm going down yeah I'm going down <laughs> well yeah. you we had us on the edge of our seats that's for sure <laughs> that's what we call commitment to character it, uh, <laughs> it sure was Geez. Well, now that I'm sufficiently embarrassed and sweating a little bit, let's kind of like, okay, so we've talked about, you know, your work in opera and your work as an actor. And obviously, as you know, this is, we are at CSI, we're an art song organization, and you have actually done some really fantastic and amazing pioneering work in art song and how it's kind of performed and delivered to people. And so I just kind of want to start off like for you, what what is an art song? And I feel like that's going to be kind of one of the main tenets of this podcast is everyone seems to have a different answer. And so I'm really curious for you, especially as someone who approaches it in such a creative way, what it, what is an art song to you mm -hmm. and what does it mean and how is it different, say, from opera? Or maybe it's not that different. Mm -hmm. um, well, I grew up in Germany um, as a child of an American parent and a and a German-speaking parents. So um, I have the pleasure and the privilege of growing up in a culture where art song is not a high art form exclusively. Mm -hmm. It's music that you can understand if you hear it. You don't have to read a translation booklet. It is very much a part of the culture. There are concerts of it happening all the time. And so actually for me, art song was the most accessible form of classical music that I experienced as a child. It was really my entry point into classical music as something not just beautiful, but complex. 
but mm-hmm. as something beautiful and simple. And in that sense, you know, I think um, I come at art song with that perspective always in my mind and in my heart that I don't think of it as an, an art form that needs to be high art. I think that there are, of course, lots of levels of complexity in art song, musical and textual, mm-hmm. but there are also many, many art songs that are very simple in music and very simple in language. In that sense, I think of it as an incredibly flexible art form, but ultimately one that can really shine a very powerful light on the human condition through its flexibility and through its simplicity and its directness. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Truly. That touched me. (laughs) But I guess the reason I asked this question, and I have a feeling I'm going to be asking it a lot, both as an administrator for this organization, but also as a performer myself, is you have all, you know, for example, all these Strauss songs that are set to orchestra, right? Or you have, you know, things like like actual song cycles that have this through storyline that can really in and of themselves be kind of a, a monodrama, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just really interesting, and I guess... I don't know if you have anything additional to say, but kind of what differentiates that from something like opera when you have something that is very theatrical or very story driven, as opposed to just, you know, the occasional little Schubert ditty that, you know, is really nice, but really it just talks about the scenery or something. Um, So how, if you were kind of talking to a singer about like characterization or something, would, would you have a different approach to them? Um, I'm going to take your question apart a little bit because I feel like there's a few really interesting parts to it. Um, I think the question of how does it differ from opera, I think the two key ways in which I think of it are are scale. I think with art song, we uh, very, very often explore emotion that is on a much smaller scale than emotion on the apparatic stage. And that doesn't mean it's less worth exploring or that it's less emotional, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But the scale of a scene where a poet is walking through the woods and thinking about death, um, that lends itself to art song in a way that on the operatic stage, um, if you're sitting like three miles away in the fifth balcony, it's very, very hard to, to get that. And it's very hard to reach that audience member and for that audience member to come close enough to reach the performer. Um, So I think scale is a big one for me. And the other one is just length, quite frankly. You know, I think the analogy to a short story and a novel is a really, really apt one. A a, a great short story can be a vignette into, you know, a person's life or or a character's life or a a world, and you're in there for 10, 20 pages, and then you're out. Or it can be epic in scale, and it it can tell an entire story. But even so, it's always basically contained and constrained by its form. And much as we love novels and we love getting swept up in a couple hundred pages of a world and kind of forgetting the world that we're in, and and much as there's maybe even a greater popular appeal to that than to something short and kind of uh, in and out like a short story can be, Mm -hmm. I personally think a, a, a great short story can just have such a concentrated impact and really, yeah. really leave you thinking and feeling so many things. So, you know, scale and also that kind of vignette quality, I think are where where those two differentiate. If you want, I can go on in terms of talking about uh, preparation and characterization. Yeah, that is something I wanted to talk about eventually anyway, because mm-hmm. I know as an actor, you and I have worked on both art song and opera. I know that you've done a lot of work with people in art song, but I'm I'm truly curious to pick your brain about what it means to characterize art song because there are some like I just did Jonathan Dove's Ariel songs which are based on Ariel from the Tempest and Mm -hmm. Ariel's text and it's very easy to find material to help you build that character for yourself because it's you know there are other actors who have done it it's based on a play but when you have something a little more vague or something that is just you know, talking about nature or like you said, a poet walking by himself in the woods. How do you approach that kind of characterization on that smaller scale when in opera you have to deal with so many bigger, grander gestures, things that are on a much larger scale? So I'm just, I'm curious about what that process looks like to you and what your approach is and Mm -hmm. yeah, just 
that stuff. Yeah. No, I love talking about that stuff because I find it really interesting. It is. It is. It is. I think the the first thing I'd want to say is that on the baseline, it's the exact same. On the baseline, if you're portraying a character in a situation, then whether that's in a song or whether that's in an opera, it is the pursuit of honesty and the rejection of archetypes that I think is sort of the number the number one and number two goals of you as the performer and, and number one and number two duties of you as a performer. Playing it honestly and truthfully and by extension, not playing people as types. So whether that's a poet or whether that's a, a, a young girl in distress or whether that's mm -hmm. a vengeful, a vengeful duke in many an opera or something, right? Like any yeah. of those archetypes <laughs> could be applied to opera or art song just as, just as kind of dangerously, I think. I think the, the greatest difference, of course, um, between an operatic character and in a, in a sense, your example of Ariel is, you know, that is a theatrical character that happens to have mm -hmm. songs written for that character. But, um, you know, if you differentiate the art song character who is typically undefined, you know, not named, um, mm -hmm. typically nothing written about them, then the big difference is, is the creativity and the personal freedom that art song affords and demands from the performer. Because sure. I think that you cannot play a character, you cannot play a character honestly, if you don't know them specifically. And in an opera setting, you do get more information because there are stage directions, there's dialogue from which you can glean stuff about both from how they behave and from what others say about you. And in mm -hmm. art song, you get very, very little. But what I've found in, in years of working with singers on this material is that your intuition as a singer, your response to the text, even if it's a six line poem, you have a picture in your head, you have a response to that. And then the job is just to flesh that out and really go all the way. And that can be incredibly exciting. Obviously, the audience will not know all of that, all of that specific background that you've ascribed to the character. But if you are in it specifically, the audience has so much greater a chance of getting out of it what you what you're really ultimately after in portraying the song and performing the song yeah. that the work is just as important. Sure. I actually have a question for you about that, because I've been thinking about this concept of scale and the really specific work that I mean, you like you said, you do on an operatic stage, but it doesn't really read to an audience. But I feel like in a concert setting, an art song setting and recital setting, you have the opportunity to bring the audience a little bit more into your world instead of performing at them. And this might be because I've, I've done so many recitals myself, it feels very invitational. Mm -hmm. That's a great um, word. So I'm wonder <laughs> I'm I'm really curious about this whole doing art song recitals in Carnegie Hall, for example. And I'm wondering if some of that invitational magic gets lost mm -hmm. because it's not really meant to be on that sort of grander scale. I mean, barring, you know, doing it with, with orchestra or something. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm curious about your, your thoughts on that. Cause I've, I've been thinking about that a lot mm -hmm. recently, especially with the pandemic and stuff. And, you know, you used to be able to see Renee Fleming at Carnegie Hall or something, give a glorious recital, but it wasn't, it didn't feel as intimate. And I feel like now that we're coming into reassessing what, what our art form is going to look like both operatically and otherwise, I feel like people are craving that intimacy. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on like what it means in terms of scale. Like, should we be doing art song, you know, on these enormous stages with huge audiences or should we go back to living room concerts? <laughs> well, I think, I think intimacy is always the ideal. I think that from doing opera in small spaces, my takeaway is always, first and foremost, how blown away an audience member is just by getting to experience that up close. And that's really a driving mm -hmm. force in all of my work is to try to bring the audience closer. And that's why film is very attractive to me, but also working in mm -hmm. smaller, unconventional kind of arrangements of spaces I find very attractive. The economics of that are challenging, of course. Um, there's a reason opera houses have big, big audiences or, or many seats because that helps to support the art form um, yes. and, and justifies having 100 people in the pit, for example. But I think while my answer is yes, like intimacy above above all else is great. 
I don't think that all is lost in a in a big setting. I think what it demands is is that specificity and that detail needs needs to be heightened and needs to be extra super clear because then it travels yeah. through the voice, it travels through the music making as well. And then even if I'm, I mean, I remember when I went to Thomas Klosthoff's uh, Carnegie debut recital. I think I was even a student at the time, so we had like student tickets way, way, way up in the back. And he's not a very tall man anyway, but we were really far away. So he was very hard to see. And yet, you know, I remember specific songs and I remember specific things that he did with his voice. And I think that level of, you know, expressivity, not just in your face, of course, which is hard to get when you're a mile away, but in your voice and in your music making, of course, um, can work and can translate. That said, yeah. if you're if you're thinking about the future of the art form and you're thinking of where people want to be, I think if nothing else during this pandemic, we, you know, all of the art that we have been taking in, we've been taking in from a very close scale. And I think it will be a little weird for people to get back into a theater and sit in the back row. Yeah. I think sure there will be people who appreciate a wider lens, but I I do feel like we're getting accustomed to seeing everything close. To being able to rewind and see things again, I find that extremely oh, discombobulating yeah. when I watch something live now and I can't go back. <laughs> um, yes. So I'm, I'm curious I totally to see. Agree. I think it'll depend, of course, on how much longer this lasts, but habits are formed relatively quickly. And we'll yeah. see if that translates into expectations. Yeah. And I think that actually kind of dovetails really nicely into kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the future of the art form and um, kind of your your role in pioneering that. Because it's been an interesting and kind of fruitful challenge as an art song organization to assess and figure out how we are going to move from this performance practice that really hasn't changed very much in hundred years, perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, moving from this idea of having, you know, the performer in the spotlight, the pianist is behind them, and then the audience out in front of you somewhere, mm -hmm. vague. Right. And now it's like you have not just the, the up close and personal of a camera and microphone, but you have so many options for like, you can stream, you can do a video, you can have people interact. And I feel like we're all still trying to figure out how best to keep things going right now. And I feel like you kind of hit the nail on the head when you came out with Poet Love is like you managed to create something so special that can only be experienced in the medium in which it is. I feel like that's the problem with digital media now is that you can't just recreate the concert experience, which is what a lot of us have been mm -hmm. trying to do, right? So you need to do something more creative with it. You need to make it in such a way that people can't experience it that way mm -hmm. in real life or elsewhere. And it's been an interesting experiment and I'm curious to see where we go. But I just want to start, I guess, kind of picking your brain about why you decided to put on Dishtaliba in that way and kind of what your inspiration was for that and to kind of follow up with what our obligation is to our art form to continue to evolve our performance mm -hmm. practice and what that might look like. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to say about all that. I think yeah. I, it's, well, it's a doozy. It's uh... <laughs> Thank you for your kind words about the film, which, you know, was a labor of love. And we put a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of heart into it. I think to answer your question about evolving the performance medium and, and whether we have an obligation to do that, I think the answer is unequivocally yes. And I think the, the reason yeah. is that the performance medium, well, what are we talking about when we say performance medium? We're saying about, we're talking about the way in which we bring this, this music to an audience and frankly, mm -hmm. the numbers of art yeah. song recitals happening in the world go down every year. The number of people who attend them goes down every year. And I'm sure that there are exceptions yep. individually. But, you know, one of the most jarring things that I found out when I started pitching Poet Love to people and when we started to do some fundraising for it is that a normal person in America does not know what the word art song means. They just didn't. They act, and I have very educated friends and cultured friends who genuinely couldn't have been, wouldn't have been able to define it. And a lot of people referred to it as opera yeah. because that's the closest yep. thing to, you know, what that they do know. So 
Yep. That's what I tell people. I, they ask, what do you do? And I say, I'm an opera singer. But the fact of the matter is I haven't sung in an opera since 2015. Right. So, right. And But I still sing classically, but people don't have associations with it. Otherwise. Exactly. So, you know, with Poet Love, I was coming from a few, few perspectives. I, as I alluded to earlier, I've always believed that art song is actually the most direct of classical music media. I think it's the most accessible. Mm-hmm. I think it's it requires the least amount of sophistication or training or experience. I think it's very hard to walk into an opera having never heard classical music and having never heard an opera and to like be able to fully give over. I think with just an art song, if yeah. it's the right song that speaks to you and if it's maybe even in a language that you speak, I think it's it's direct and it's immediate and there's no translation, you know, or or, or sophistication so to speak necessary. And I always felt frustrated, you know, in the States that by virtue of it being this high art form and this very kind of sophisticated pursuit where you have to read the translation, it's always in a foreign language. You know, it was just, it has become this very inaccessible medium and this very inaccessible form of classical music, harder in a way to access and less popular than symphonic concerts and certainly much less popular than opera. And, you know, every time you're, I remember at Juilliard sitting in a, you know, a student recital or something, and there'd be, you know, the mandatory German set, the mandatory French set, the mandatory Italian set. Yeah. And then some students would sing some English at the end. And suddenly the whole audience was like laughing or, yeah, exactly. They were responding yeah. and it was a completely different experience. And at the same time, also in working with students on art song, which of course, you know, is an integral part of, of most singers training early on, especially, I kept being hit by these rules, you know, these kind of unwritten rules but very strict rules about what you can and cannot do when you're an art song performer. And, you know, can I take a step? Ooh, I don't know. Can I be, you know, can I be more than two steps away from the piano? Ooh, I don't know. And so, you know, of course it's all, it's, it's all vague, (laughs) but it's pretty, pretty powerful, you know, and, and people feel very scared to be creative, which always struck me as incredibly sad in an art form that the composers and the poets were so creative. Why are we being so conservative and thereby essentially pushing away our audience? So those were, those were a lot of the thoughts going into the choices I made about Poet Love. Obviously the cycle itself, you know, was, was a major reason to do anything at all, because Mm -hmm. I think it's such a beautiful story. It's such a moving story. It's a timeless story. I was always struck by the language being, even though it's poetic, and even though it's from, you know, 150 years ago, or more, it's so simple. Um, And the language reads so contemporary, the the German does not Mm -hmm. feel old. Yeah, it's not Mm -hmm. colloquial modern German, but it's definitely any German would read it and understand it. In a way that if you read Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. you would have to look words up. Here you don't. So Mm -hmm. I always loved that about it. And I loved the music a lot. And I listened to it a lot and knew it quite well. And so I wanted to find a way to tell the story and to bring it to more people. And also to sort of show people that art song can be a way to to bring you into classical music rather than to push you away. And so we decided, you know, what's the what's the medium that allows us the creativity that a stage performance of an art song recital probably doesn't, but that also can reach an audience beyond the art song audience that it already has. And so we started to gravitate towards film and we, you know, started to think about language, which was a big question. You know, having grown up in Germany, my initial reaction was like, well, it has to be in German. Obviously, the German is so (laughs) integral. And then the more I thought about it, you know, the more I realized, okay, so then everybody's going to be watching it with subtitles. And those subtitles are going to be an even worse translation than a sung translation, Mm -hmm. because it's going to have to be distilled. And it takes you out. If you watch, you know, if you look at statistics Mm -hmm. of foreign films, nobody watches foreign films. If you watch a trailer of a foreign film, you'll notice that there's like never any dialogue in it, because they don't want to tell people that it's a foreign film. um, So there's all of this all of these barriers that come with doing it in a foreign language. And so I decided I bit the bullet and I decided to do it in English. And, you know, the response on that's been really, really positive, much more so than I feared. Um, Several of our mutual friends and colleagues and teachers 
you know, who I was quite nervous about, you know, said it was weird for 30 seconds. And then I totally forgot and I gave over. So that's where we came from. I guess that's a long answer to your question. No, that's amazing. And I think, I mean, when when Sam and I were trying to figure out what this season was going to look like for us, the idea of glorified music videos came to the table. But the thing is, is we would not have been able to come up with anything remotely resembling good production mm-hmm. value. <laughs> and I think that it's just I had never seen anything like Poet Love before that had been done successfully and well and was like captivating and good for lack of a better word. Thank you. And I think it's it's high praise <laughs> coming from me. <laughs> but no, I think it's fascinating because people have kind of thrown around this idea, but really not as successfully as I think they would like to. So I'm just curious, like, what are our classical and operatic music videos? Are they the way of the future? <laughs> or maybe maybe a potential facet yeah, of it? I think they are a way of the future, right? I, I did not make the movie because I wanted all art song to move out of the concert hall. Um, I think it'd be really, really <laughs> nice to keep hearing music live. But I do think that it's a way to meet people where they are. And I think so much of what determines art going is interest in it. I can tell you that something's awesome, but that's not going to get you to buy the ticket. But if you're already a little Mm -hmm. bit interested in it or you've already had a positive experience and then a friend tells you, oh, there's this thing I might be going to. I think that makes such a huge difference. And so where are people? They're on their phones. They're watching short videos, you know, that it's it's the most natural uh, medium. You know, everybody when the pandemic hit, everybody was saying, well, we need art. And yet people didn't consume all of these high art videos that we made poorly, as you rightly said. Instead, Netflix subscriptions went way, way, way up, you know, and Hulu subscriptions Mm -hmm. went way, way, way up. That's where people go for their art now. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's any point in denying that. And in that sense, I think it has to be part of our arsenal. But as you as you very rightly yeah. said, and, and I, I, I hate to say it because it's it sounds disparaging and it sounds uh, arrogant. But unfortunately, so much of the work that is produced in our world of classical singing, opera and art song is done with a really sloppy amount of attention paid to the actual product. And you're showing this stuff to people who see high, high quality stuff all the time. And you can't expect them to just say, well, they're trying. So, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. It's like, no, it just looks bad compared to X, Y, and Z, any other video you're watching. So, you know, with regards to Poet Love, you know, we we were, I was kind of stumbling my way through the process. Obviously there was no template for making something like this. But one of the things with hindsight Mm -hmm. that really, really made it excellent or or had to give it a chance to be excellent was that my producer and my closest creative partner in all this, um, my, my old friend, Justine Rutskiewicz, she's a film person. She's a film producer. And so she, as much as she Mm -hmm. loved art song and loved classical music, and that's why she signed on to the project with me. She always held it to the standard of a film. She always evaluated it according to film criteria in terms of the story, in terms of the screenplay in terms of characters and the character the 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 backstories and all of this stuff so you know it had to have cinematic integrity for her to be able to you know green light anything on it and that obviously made me much better but i think it also made the film much much better yeah i've been talking to a handful of my friends and colleagues about the same thing where it's like you you are a musician you have been trained in the music (laughs) Why do you think that you are going to be good at making a movie or a music video? Just because you have access to a computer does not automatically mean that you are going to create something amazing. Chances are it's not going to be. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why we why we hire costume designers like we can all pick clothes but you know some people can do it a little better than we can and there's a reason we hire photographers for weddings and don't just have you know our stepdads do it or whatever my stepdad is a semi-professional photographer so that's that was was just where my mind went but he he would have done a great job but no but i think the the point is we don't know everything and i certainly didn't know anything at the time and surrounded myself with experts, which made me look great. And, you know, I, I, unfortunately I see that with a lot of my colleagues right now. I think there are a lot of 
directors who are, you know, because of this pandemic being thrown into uh, becoming filmmakers or having to be filmmakers. And frankly, it's yeah. hard for us directors to admit that we don't know something because part of our job is to pretend that we know everything all the time so that people trust us. But the result is, yeah. as you as you rightly said, a lot of uh, work that people frankly don't really want to watch. Well, and actually, you, you brought up a good point where, you know, this kind of brings together the idea of training and the future of our art form is the fact that you know, we're moving ever more into the digital age and things like film and digitally consuming video media and everything. Is that, do you think that's going to change how we have to train our singers? Is it going to be, you know, all of a sudden that it's not just acting for singers, but that singers are required to take like a film acting course? Or has that changed how you approach working with your students even because, you know, it's like, oh, uh, you, y'all are going to be on camera now. We need to work on your eyebrows. <laughs> it's time. You yep. know, you know what I mean? But like, is this going to change how we train our singers? I do. do you think? I do think so. Um, I think that there are certain innovations that have been forced upon us through this pandemic that I don't think are going to go away. And partly yeah. because, frankly, we're really late to the party. But like video auditions yep. in all shapes and forms are so much more efficient up to a certain point. Oh, um, my gosh. Are you saying that happily or sadly? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I'm so happy. Oh, when I, the, I mean, this is a, a side bit, but I, I was able to audition for like 12 mm -hmm. young artist programs. I just, all I had to mm -hmm. do was send the stuff mm -hmm. and that's it. And they, it was great. And they didn't it have to fly amazing. to New York and have to be apart from their families. And you didn't have I to, didn't fly, to have New York, fly to New York. <laughs> and their company didn't have to spend all that money on flights and hotels and could spend that on programming instead. And, and, you know, there's a limit to that. But for example, with Poet Love, that was my first experience of doing almost entirely online casting. When I had worked theater companies before that, you know, we had used the traditional model of using a casting agent who calls out sort of, mm -hmm. you know, the a smaller group, and then you go in person, you see them. And we were basically able to do that on video. And, and so when we had auditions, you know, we only had a few hours of auditions, and everybody who came in was really interesting. So... Yeah, yeah, I think so for, for if nothing else, I think video auditions are going to stick around to some degree. And so for nothing else, you're going to want to know how to perform for a camera because you're going to need to make audition tapes. So to answer your question about my teaching, like that is something I've by necessity, we've been focusing on, you know, this this year, mm -hmm. working with young artists and working also with the students at Juilliard. And I think that'll be something that I, I want to continue doing also because I believe in it. I think acting for film, the only focus is on being truthful. Um, there's no focus on scale. There's no focus even on holding a stage, which are all important skills mm -hmm. too. But that basic kernel of honesty, you cannot get around uh, on film. And frankly, I don't think you yeah. can get around that on stage real well either. Um, you know, it's something that focusing on, I, I started a little business called Top 10 Role Study, where helping people mm -hmm. learn roles remotely, but we're also doing some audition prep and and we found that to be an area of, you know, a lot of interest because people feel really poorly prepared for it and they realize that it's, that it is really yeah, important. Absolutely. I mean, this does not, it's just kind of been floating around my brain as we've been talking. Um, but it kind of brings me back to when we were talking about characterization and precedents associated with certain characters, you know, like. Ariel is the example that we've been working with, you know, and that when you're doing settings of those songs in a recital context, as opposed to in the play or in the opera, you have a little more creativity because someone coming in might not have that sort of background and you have an opportunity to, um, yeah, just to kind of create more of your own world. So I'm really curious, um, I feel like I probably asked you these <laughs> things during acting class at one point, and clearly yes. they've just left the, my brain. The fault would be mine um, and only mine, so but, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but what is our responsibility as singers to kind of abide by the performance precedent as opposed to creating our own universe for established characters, you know? And I think of um, Ophelia or something. It seems to be a lot of uh, Shakespearean characters who have their have their texts set in art song. Um, but what, if any, responsibility do we have as singers to adhere to those mm. performance precepts? Well, <laughs> I have two I have two different answers for you depending on who who's asking. Okay. If you're asking from a performer standpoint, it's one thing. If you're asking from an auditioner's standpoint, it's another thing. I think um, <laughs> well, let me start with the boring one, which is the auditioner's perspective. You know, if you're auditioning for a role. And you don't know 
what production of that role you're auditioning for, or maybe you don't even know if, if you're auditioning for that role, but you think, well, maybe they'll do this role in the next few years, or they'll do this opera in the next few years, and this is the role I want to sing for. You know, and a teacher of mine uh, who's a director, Nick Muni, I quote him because I think it's very pragmatic and very smart wisdom. He, his thing was always, you have to be able to do two things. You have to be able to show them that you have original ideas about the character and that you have a brain and that you have ideas, um, you know, uh, that you can bring to the table. But on the other hand, you also have to be able to convince them that if they cast you in a super traditional production of that role, you can fulfill the basic requirements of that character. So to give a bad example, sure. if you are you know, auditioning for Carmen, you might have a read of her that's much more insecure and vulnerable than is traditionally portrayed. And you should show that because that's cool. And that shows that you have thought about it and you've studied it and you have ideas. But at the same time, if you're gonna play her you know, completely without, without charisma, without presence and without sex appeal, um, they probably won't cast you because they'll be worried that if they do go with a traditional production, you might not be able to do it. So in terms, so that's one yeah. answer. That's the boring answer. The the interesting topic is really as a performer, what do you do with a character and what do you do with performance practice? I would say it's the same that I would mm. do as a director. I would certainly study past productions um, just for the for the knowledge that they give me and just for to not feel sure. like an idiot. But at the end of the day. <laughs> Um, just because it's been done a certain way does not mean it needs to be done that way ever again, even if it was good, nor, and I think this is really important when it comes to performance uh, in opera and in song, nor does it mean that it was good. <laughs> it might've been great music making. It might've been great for its time and for its audience, but we have a huge mm -hmm. problem I find in the fact that our performance of opera and our performance of art song already has really evolved. And part of that is we've, we've moved with our audience. Our audience is uh, less forgiving of non-acting or boring acting. They want a more believable performance. Yeah. And so if you watch an old video or you listen to your teacher and they say, well, I did it this way 40 years ago or Pavarotti did it this way, that's great. But that doesn't mean that it needs to be done that way. So it requires a lot of courage sure. and a lot of initiative from young singers, because of course, when you're feeling unsure, the first thing you want to do is, well, if somebody else has done it like this before, then I know I'm not wrong, but you kind of have to yeah. take the plunge and say, well, I'm right because X, Y, and Z, I can back it up based on the text, based on the music, based on my own inspirations stemming from those things. And then, sure. you know, what I learned with Poet Love and what I keep learning with uh, unconventional productions of operas that I, that I do is that the number of people who are traditionalists is really, really quite small. It's much smaller than you think. They're loud. Yeah. And when we're in school and when we're in, when we're working, we're, of course, we're exposed to them much more than is realistic, but in a seat, in a house of a yeah. hundred people or 2000 people or whatever you're performing for, most of the people have maybe never heard your material, at least in the United States, or they've heard it once or twice and they're totally there for whatever you're going to do. Yeah, that's just a conversation that I've had with a lot of my colleagues about, I mean, not just not just the art form in and of itself, but like the performance mm -hmm. practice, what you wear, what's acceptable to, you know, show up to an audition with mm -hmm. um, your aria package. Or if you're on stage, like I did a recital recently in mm -hmm. a pantsuit and barefoot. And just because like for me, that was what expressed the character best. That was what enabled mm -hmm. me. And it was acapella. So like, it was just me on the stage. And I was like, if I'm wearing four inch heels on stage, I can't move around freely. I can't be expressive. And I just remember people came mm -hmm. up to me and they were like, that was wild. How, how did you do that? And I was like, well, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just, it felt right. But I think I, I really like what you had to say is that people are, mm -hmm. they, they're here for it, you know, and that the traditionalists, as valuable as their input is, it's not just that yeah, one. Not way. at all. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you, are there any projects or exciting things you have coming up that you, you can talk about or things that you're excited about the future of art song and just kind of the work that you're doing um, with that or even just teaching or in opera um, that you think will be beneficial for the future of our <laughs> beloved song? Well, you know, form? if I'm to be honest, 
uh, I found it really, really hard to to really bring any interesting projects to fruition during this time. There are a couple things that I'm that are sort of on a slow burn. You know, I think as an artist in this time, it's it's really I've really struggled to sort of focus on what feels important and what feels right to do. I think on the one hand, it's hard to do anything that ignores the world that we're living in right now. And the- I actually wanted to ask you about that. Have you felt a need to like respond to what's going on? Because people I've talked to have done one or the other. It's either they're like, no, I am artistically drained. I can't do anything right now. This has been a lot. Or some people just desperately feel the need to like respond to what's going on to give people art to help them you know, move through this and give them something to relate to. So what's, what's been your response to that? Cause it's really been. Yeah. I don't perceive the need for art personally. And I know I'm kind of in a, that's an unpopular minority in our community. I perceive a lot of other need though. I perceive a need for positive help. I perceive a need for structure. I perceive a need for reform and a sense of justice and, and greater progressive forces in terms of our art. And, and I mean that to include all of classical music. So I, while, yeah. you know, I personally, as an artist, I don't feel drained. I just don't know what I can contribute as an artist right now. Well, right. No, You're I mean, I mean, right artistically now. speaking, right? Like <laughs> I don't want to do a, a piece yeah. about COVID because I don't think anybody wants to watch anything about COVID because we're already inundated with it. But to do something completely random about something yeah. else also feels wrong to me or doesn't feel right. Um, so what I've been putting my energy into is a, an initiative that I have been working on and haven't launched yet, but basically an attempt to kind of articulate and perhaps even implement better ways forward for educating singers focused around empowerment sure. and focused around this idea of a creative voice. I think singers nowadays are being asked to be outspoken about their values. They're being asked to be artistically creative and individual they're being asked to have personas and identities beyond just being a soprano or being a tenor. And I don't think they're being, I don't think our training is preparing them for that at all. Um, I think our training is still based on the old model where we are producing wonderful cogs for wonderful machines that will just continue spinning forever. And so that's something I've been really yeah. dedicated to. As I mentioned, I started this online business during the pandemic, which has also been mm -hmm. an attempt to help people stay productive and to take advantage of what I think are the positives of the pandemic, which is in our sphere access. You can now hire me and I can hook you up with fantastic coaches from the Metropolitan Opera and lots of other great opera houses around the world all of whom are available. Mm -hmm. And thanks to the, the media that we have accessible access to now are accessible to people from all over the world. I get to connect people from Asia with people on the West Coast and the East Coast of the United States and Europe and all of that. And that to me feels important and that to me feels meaningful. So that's kind of where my energy has been going. That is awesome. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's kind of one of the things that I want to make sure that we include here is how people can connect with you. <laughs> so you just gave yourself a great advertisement. That's great. And I know that I've been to my friends who are actually motivated to sing and keep doing role studies. I've, I've turned your name you. about a bit, but I did want to follow up on empowering singers and reassessing the educational structures and everything. It's so funny because I graduated from Juilliard six years ago, started in 2010. And wow, that's a long time ago. <laughs> um, it's just really interesting because I've noticed that really stark change in singers being allowed, being given permission mm -hmm. to be more individual, to kind of forge their own path, to have opinions, mm -hmm. to be, to play and to be more artistically creative. Because I remember during my time at Juilliard, I mean, I received an excellent education and I was very grateful for the opportunities that I was given there. Mm -hmm. But that was not the case when I was there. And I'm just wondering if you've seen, I mean, you've kind of been in it. It's kind of like watching paint dry or watching your hair grow. You don't really notice the change mm -hmm. until one day you look in the mirror and you're like, <gasps> But was it a really stark change? Because I feel like all of a sudden one day I woke up and mm. I was allowed to have an opinion. <laughs> it does. It does. Does that make sense? It's funny because it, it really is a stark difference. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's because younger people are starting to take over these, you know, leadership artistic positions. But I'm just really curious what your observations have been about that. And um, well, I, I think it's do you. Uh, do you yes, think it's beneficial? I do think it's important. I think it's, I think it makes everything better. 
I think it's uh, I think it's a mess. Like I, I, I don't think it's a a sort of uniform lockstep move where institutions, you know, arts organizations, schools, and performers are all on the same page, you know, deciding, hey, let's just do this differently and better. I think it's happening in certain areas and yeah. it's and it's happening, you know, kind of haphazardly and and organically, which is good. I think, you know, a fair amount of it is stemming from social justice upheavals of the last two years, both in terms of Me Too and then in terms of Black yeah. Lives Matter. And suddenly everybody wanted to hear from singers about their experience where before nobody had really ever asked unless you were super famous. Yeah. And so I think that's both yeah. really good and oh. also really shines a light on how ill-equipped our education system is to help people with that. Because how do you go from yeah. being, you know, spending your four years at, I don't want to single out Juilliard because I think Juilliard, we do a lot of things right and we do a lot of things well, but at any such music school where the primary focus is making you employable, you know, making sure that your Italian diction is yeah. really, really good when you walk in the door, making sure that you can learn music on your own, making sure that when you sing, you sing well and stylistically and you, or sorry, stylishly and, you know, with good technique. How can you expect that person to go out and give a sophisticated interview on how the arts should change to better accommodate and better represent diversity? I think that's a really, really unfair yeah. ask. But at the same time, I feel really passionately that I, I, I don't mean passionately in the sense of emotionally. I mean, I feel very convinced of the fact that the only way anything will change in our industry is from the performers. I don't see it coming from the boards. I don't see it coming from art, from artistic leadership if it doesn't come from boards and audiences. Yeah. And I don't see it coming from those places. I see it only coming if performers say, we will not go on like this. We demand these things. And I think that sense of creative and personal advocacy and identity is something that we are not helping singers find. And of course, there are those who do and who gravitate towards that and who have that innately. But if we're expecting everybody to be more like that, yeah. we have to also give them the tools to do that. I completely agree. And I think uh, I vaguely recall a conversation I had with you mm -hmm. probably about six years ago um, when I was like really struggling to figure out what I wanted to do about if I wanted to go to graduate school or if mm -hmm. I wanted to take time off and like work. And the thing is, I think one of the reasons, and I, I may have mentioned this to you at the time, but I was so drawn to art song because I felt mm -hmm. like there was a lot less regulation in that respect you know but I had been told for so long the only way to have a career the only way to be successful what we are training you for is mm -hmm. to cross the street and to go to the Met that is what we're training you for and I was like well I feel like I'm being told a lot about what I need mm -hmm. to do and I want to try something else um, so what I'm hearing right now from you is that in your own sort of sphere, trying to pioneer some way to encourage singers really to advocate for themselves, because at the time, six years ago, seven years ago, I was not able to advocate for myself. And if I did, I was kind of lost in the shuffle or shut down apart from a couple of people who really tried to, to mentor my interests, um, which yeah, eventually led me to you. where I am now, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> But it's my my path is very uncommon because I was told no so many times and mm -hmm. I just found ways to skirt around that. But I find that even just talking to my siblings who are part of the <laughs> Generation Z folk, trying to just talking to them, they all seem to have a lot mm -hmm. stronger sense of who they are and what they want and mm -hmm. that they're willing to speak out to get it. So are you creating like a curriculum or are you just doing like a mentorship leadership kind of program? I'm, I'm, I'm legit. Yeah, really it's very much in progress and, awesome. and we're not 100% sure yet which direction it'll take. It'll certainly start with some kind okay. of a curricular platform and, and some some basic ideas of okay. what, you know, we we would love places to implement. You know, it's born a little bit out of a place of like, I'm tired of complaining about it and I want to have a positive solution. Like if somebody asks me, okay, so you're unhappy with how it yeah. is. Here's, here's a school. What are you going to do? I want to have an answer for that. And I'm happy to share that answer with the world in case anybody else wants to take it. But we might, you know, I've, I've my experiences with my role study business has been that there really is actually a, a greater openness and a greater acceptance of learning online and learning in unconventional ways. And so I, I am very inspired by that. I'm very interested in 
in seeing, you know, how, how that can democratize education and the provision of education. What I'm curious about in this kind of dovetails, again, is that with this kind of encouragement of expressivity and wanting people to advocate for themselves and kind of find their own path or make justifications for their artistic choices, are you finding that students are more open to lending themselves to vulnerability? Because I know as a human, when that vulnerability, like light starts to shine on me, mm -hmm. I still have a tough time not running away. But what I found in, you know, mm -hmm. talking to, to the young folks um, is that they are a lot more willing to open mm -hmm. up about X, Y, or Z thing that's important to them or that they feel passionate about. But I'm curious if, if you have found that that's translating into the art that they're creating, whether that be on the operatic stage or on the recital stage. But if you're finding that they're more open to vulnerability, because I know that was something that I struggled a lot with during my time at Juilliard, because you felt like, I hesitate to say a straight jacket, but you feel like you have to fit into this mold of like, no, you can't take mm -hmm. more than two steps away from the crook of the piano or, you know, mm -hmm. you will destroy the connection you have with your pianist. So I'm curious if you found that that has encouraged what you've been honing this whole time is, you know, digging mm -hmm. out those kernels of truth and letting them shine. In, in, um, in I mean, I think vulnerability is having a cultural moment, right? Which I'm very happy about. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, so Brown. I think that, you. <laughs> um, you know, to that, to, to, to a certain extent, the answer is 100% yes. Like, People are having conversations that they might not have had in a group before, in a class before. And I think that the bigger answer to whether that's coming into the art, I think it's still lagging really far behind. And I think that's that's still our industry. And I think that's still sure. there's a lot of systemic challenges and and a lot of a lot of spaces in classical music that are just really, really unsafe. And again, classical music and and opera are really lagging lagging far behind the theater uh, in that regard, you know, just as a as a silly anecdote, mm -hmm. you know, in in when I worked at the Shakespeare Theater, which was, you know, more than 10 years ago now, the idea that somebody, anybody from artistic administration of that theater would waltz into a rehearsal unannounced, even announced was crazy talk, like no way would the artistic director come in unannounced in the middle of rehearsal and just sit down and watch for a few minutes because everybody knew that would destroy the rehearsal. Suddenly everybody would start performing and that is absolutely that normal in an opera house. Um, and well, and it's, it's, there's a reason, you know, it's not because it's not only because theater loves to be touchy feely and care about people, <laughs> maybe too much, maybe not enough, but it's because they, from a, from a, <laughs> you know, from a business standpoint, you want your result to be better. Here's one way to, to not sabotage your result is actually let your performers work in a safe, you know, an environment where they feel like they can be vulnerable. So, you know, that's, I think we have a lot of work to yeah. do there. I think that there are a lot of good impulses. I do think that the cultural moment is one that is, is putting some pressure on institutions to, to take that seriously. I'm very nervous about that pressure ebbing when we move on to the next moment, whatever that is. Unfortunately, with, mm -hmm. with all of these movements towards greater justice, you know, in, in the broadest sense, not just gender and racial, but also just fair treatment of performers and a safe workplace and all of these questions. Mm -hmm. um, I think right now our biggest tool has been so far has been sort of public shaming. And unfortunately, that works, but it, it either has a backlash or it just wears off really fast. So if people aren't demanding it, you know, in a, in a yeah. consistent, consequential way, then I don't have great hope that, that we will continue to make great progress on that. But I'm hopeful that, again, through, through better training and through training performers to know what they can demand and what, you know, they can, what they can put their foot down about in order to allow them to therefore be vulnerable and ultimately better, right? Ultimately more yeah. effective for the audience, which is we, we mm -hmm. are in the entertainment business at the end of the day, right? You know, I think uh, if that can happen and if we can push that from the education level, then I'm hopeful. I don't see it happening if we don't do it in education. I absolutely agree. And to pick up on your point about, you know, making sure that we are still connecting with our audiences and everything too. And I guess this kind of ties into the educational process a little bit, but this whole idea of people call it new music, and they vaguely refer to something, you know, from the t early <laughs> mm -hmm. to mid 20th century till today. I'm really curious 
your thoughts on our obligation, not just as performers, but the people who are composing, the, the poets, the, the actual music composers, the directors, all of that. When we approach a piece of new music, as opposed to something like Puccini or Verdi or Schubert or Schumann or Debussy, when we come into this new music that may have a more relevant twinge to our current circumstances, I guess, what is our obligation to, I don't know, what is, how, how much do you think we need to bring the audience into the fold in that? I'm not, I'm not saying my question very well. Basically, I've had conversations with people about new music and it's like, is it to just keep perpetuating the art form in and of itself? Or is it to allow it to resonate more with our audiences and with kind of the cultural things that are relevant right now? Or will things being culturally relevant right now alienate future audiences? Well, if I, and the, it's a loaded question, but I feel like yeah. we're, we're kind of in, the, we're, we're in this. No, I mean, and if I had a great song, answer to I'm your question, I, your I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd probably be like giving a TED talk and making a lot of money right now. Right. No, I think it's probably. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, all right, where to go with this one? I think that, you know, the question of whether to speak to a, a new audience or to speak to the audience you already have is the hardest question that faces um, classical music organizations, whether that's art song, whether that's uh, opera, whether that's symphonic repertoire. Because if you go towards the new music route, you're going to lose uh, uh, the sort of core of your audience right now in most of classical music are people who love traditional classical music, traditional Western classical music. The raison d'etre of your organization is probably to serve them on some level. So I think that's one danger. I think the other danger of going sort of putting all your chickens in, in that basket, is that right? No, putting all your eggs in one basket. The chickens are there once they're... Yeah, exactly. The, chi the chickens... The are, other danger of putting all your eggs in one basket <laughs> is that I think we don't currently have in classical music the reputation, and rightly so, of being progressive or edgy. If you're a, one of your sure. Gen Z you know, family members and you're looking for some kind of interesting, edgy, artistic experience this weekend, and somebody said, hey, there's this art song recital, you would probably think, eh, probably <laughs> I can find something cooler. Um, because when I think edgy, I don't think opera, I don't think art song. Yeah. And so that's not to say we couldn't be those things. I think we'd have to earn that name. We'd have to earn that reputation. And so that building that new audience that's going to come and see yeah. your new work that's going to be a multi-year multi, multi -year process. That's going to be a basically a generational process. So I think invariably we need to do both. I think we need to serve the audience that we have um, and the sure. people who actually love and sustain and support what we're doing. But I think we also need to very forcefully start to build that new audience for 10 years from now or 15 years from now. But we can't, we can't yeah. tell ourselves that just because there are young people out there and we do edgy things. Therefore, we will have an audience for those edgy things. And the most important part of all this is, is back to our original conversation. It's quality, right? There's a lot of new work out there that's either not very good mm -hmm. or not being done in it very well. And at that point, you're really shooting yourself in the foot because if somebody's yeah. coming in, paying money, foregoing a night of something that they know to be fun and coming to see your edgy art song recital that's being performed poorly or that's that's music that wasn't written super well, at that point, those people might be gone then forever. I, I really want to trademark edgy art song recital. I really <laughs> just want to trademark that, trademark David Paul 2020. But I'm curious too, like I've been in kind of new visionary operatic renditions of opera. With Minnesota Opera, I did the, the Die Zauberflöte that had kind of the projections. Of kind production. of, yes, yes. Um, and they did they did that here, which was which was awesome. It was super fun to be in. And I found that everyone mm -hmm. I talked to, including my parents, who who are musicians, um, but you know, never really ventured into the opera world until mm -hmm. I said, Hi, this is what I'm gonna do for my living. A lot of people really, really enjoyed it and thought it was super fun. And I'm wondering if that is another possible avenue for us in terms of engaging with our now digital audiences is like finding these ways that even though it might not be in their native language, it's a really intuitive production with a lot of mm -hmm. visual elements that keep it really, really compelling. I guess I'm kind of musing out loud, but I feel like that would be difficult to translate into 
art song unless you did something like what you did with Poet Love. Mm -hmm. But yeah, having that I think that the is so important. you know that particular production that you're speaking of, there's a lot of reasons why you know I would say not every show should be like that one, and it certainly wouldn't work for every opera, and it mm -hmm. certainly not, I don't think that every production of the Magic Flute should be yeah. that production. But at the same time, it was really not boring. <laughs> and I think that is something. Mm -hmm. And that plus really beautiful music goes a long way. So I think, again, it's a way forward. I agree with you. And I think that, you know, I think that there are ways to present art song that are not boring. And I don't think you need visual stimulus to achieve that. Mm -hmm. You might need a super compelling performer if you don't have visual mm -hmm. stimulus. And you might need a setting with not crappy ceiling lighting where people don't have to sit still for an hour at a time and read foreign language <laughs> translations the whole time. These are all just hypotheses, right? But, you know, I, I, I think that there are answers to that. And again, I, I, I wouldn't have made the movie if I didn't, if I didn't firmly yeah. believe in the power of art song to actually reach anyone. Absolutely. I wanted to um, mm -hmm. throw out two more things before we kind of wrap up here. Um, the first is, mm -hmm. is there any, apart from uh, your role study, um, are there any other ways that people who might be listening might be able to connect with you or things that you have coming up that they might be able to tune into, whether it be mm -hmm. a live stream or not? Sure. Yeah. If you're interested, future, you know, obviously I have a website for. just like everybody does, but we, um, I did have a chance to work at Wolf Trap this summer. Um, we threw together a video project rather quickly, not knowing until weeks before whether we could do anything at all. It was and it and it was uh, it was fun and it yeah. was interesting. And it's called the Orpheus Project. So if you Google Wolf uh, Wolf Trap or the Or Orpheus Project, you should be able to find some some videos that we made that that were more than just a videotape performance, I think. So that's worth checking out if you're interested. You know, I Definitely obviously if you haven't seen <laughs> Poet Love, we we stream on the All Arts platform, which is a an offshoot of PBS. And uh, that's free for anyone to watch. And you can read more about our film and follow links to the film through our website, which is poetlovefilm.com. If you are interested in, in studying uh, at all, whether that's a role or whether that's, you know, working on arias or text or songs or anything like that, as you already mentioned, you can check my, my website, which is rollstudy.com. So many websites. Uh, and we are also on, on the more trendy social, <laughs> social media. I'll make sure I put well. them in the People podcast notes. That, so. David, you better watch out. I well, might be there in touch are. with you there about doing some CSI Moving in that TikToks. direction faster than so. any of us. <laughs> I, I keep talking to uh my colleague sam oh. about that and he's like i yes, swear we will never do tiktok yes, and i'm like just it's a great you. idea it's a creative platform so i i'm a lot less so. of a hater than others but but yeah those are the best ways to connect with me and i have some projects that awesome. are that are okay. as i said that are on a slow slow burn so when those happen you know if you follow me on instagram or um you know check out my website from now and then you'll be able to find out about those two. Excellent. All right. And the last thing I have is, do you have a pithy piece of advice? Hmm. Pithy, for pithy. Um, our dear listeners. Well, it's not super pithy, but I think the my, my greatest piece of advice to any of you guys <laughs> is anytime that you come up against what you think is a rule for doing something a certain way in classical music or a thing you can or cannot do, just ask why. And I think very quickly your horizons will will expand very quickly because most of those rules do not have an answer to the why question. And I think that's the biggest inhibitor on our creativity. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to carry that with me for a while. 